You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome back to the podcast Dr. Lars Sandbeck, lecturer in theology at the Center for Pastoral Education and Research for the Danish National Church. The Center for Research and Education is located in Copenhagen. Dr. Sandbeck has an excellent grasp of the history and development of Lutheran theology. He is well studied, and I highly value his theological insights, and I'm very pleased to have him with us again to discuss the broader implications of the biblical declaration that God is love. Welcome again, Dr. Sandbeck, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, Dr. Sandbeck, let me just begin with this very basic question. What does it mean to say God is love? Well, first of all, I think it's an absolutely wonderful and profound statement from from the New Testament, and and I'm still wondering and pondering about the depths of this statement, this declaration that God is love, and thinking that maybe we're getting a bit too used <laughs> to saying that God is love, so that we cease mm-hmm. to appreciate the amazement of this statement. S- uh, somehow strange and uh, not intuitive. It, it, actually is because this is a statement about God who is the infinite source of being who is the ground of all being who is uh, the creator and sustainer of the entire cosmos and this infinite power eternal and infinite power is, is claimed to be love something that all of us hopefully experience in our own lives, something which is extremely valuable and something which we couldn't live without. And this love that we experience in our own lives, with our children, with our loved ones, and hopefully also will be extended to people who are foreign to us, that the Bible claims that this love a phenomenon, a human phenomenon is actually God, or that God is actually love and and therefore also a kind of an experiential reality is quite a stunning statement to make, I think. But obviously there there are different things to say about this. I, I think first of all, we have to make clear what is actually claimed when first John, I think it's chapter for claims that God is love. It is um, because there might be some disagreement here. I take it to mean that I take this, the declaration to be a statement about the essence or nature or being of, of God. It's not a statement which claims that God is loving. It's not an attribute as such, that God is capable of love, but is also capable of a lot of different other things, that God is part Mm -hmm. love and part something else. It's a declaration to the effect 
that God in his own being is love. So the divine nature is actually, in a sense, we have to try to understand, is actually love. And I think, uh, and we should get back, back to that later, that this declaration is actually, we have, we have to think Trinitarian in order to fully understand how, how it makes sense that God is love. Before we get to the Trinitarian part of this, there is a sense in which there are some absolutes in which God is described as spirit, as light, and has love. It occurs to me that if God is light in whom there is no darkness at all, God is love in whom there is nothing that is not love, and God is spirit in whom there is nothing that is not spirit. So those are all claims about the very essence of God, which then also would be shared in a Trinitarian understanding as well. Sure. And I think these are the only three, at least New Testament, definitions about who and what God is. That God is spirit, light, and love. And I think that the two latest, uh, the latter one, uh, that God is love and God is light, is a different ways of saying essentially the same thing. It's about a statement about mm -hmm. the unique and uh, infinite goodness of God. And spirit has more statement of the metaphysical reality of God, that God is, please don't misunderstand me, but God is made of spirit. God, God is a spirit in his being in the sense that he's not a material kind of object. The God is uh, spirit is, is uh, something that's, and spirit of course in, in Greek, pneuma means air, something invisible, something that's omnipresent, something that's, so we so to speak inhale God, <laughs> breathe in God, we live in God, and uh, as Paul claims in, in his speech on, uh, in Athens, that we live and move and have our being in God. So God is this kind of spirit that is everywhere and in everything. And uh, we live and move and have our being in this spirit God. That's the declaration that, that, Paul, that Paul makes in the book of Acts, that we live and move and have our being in God. And he makes that to a group of pagan people. Exactly. And uh, he includes them. We all live in God, whether we know it or not, whether we're Christians or not. God is the creator God who is not uh, living at a distance of the world he has created, but he su sustains it at every moment by giving it its existence, by sharing his life with something that's not God, which in itself is an act of love to sustain somebody in existence. But a spirit could be a very ambiguous thing. You know, there was, there's a spirit of capitalism, there's a spirit of Joseph Stalin, etc. A spirit can be mm -hmm. a mean one, an evil spirit. But the spirit that God is, is then claimed to be love. This is not an evil, but a good spirit. So I think the two statements, God is spirit and God is love, claims that the being of God is a, of a spiritual kind, but this spirit is determined and 
qualified by the second claim that God is love. So it qualifies the manner of which in which God is spirit, a good spirit, the spirit of love. And perhaps we also want to say that God is more than a big person with competing aspects of personality, that we have to be careful to not anthropomorphize God, although we want to think of God as a person or personality or an, or a trinity, we don't want to think of God as a a big human being who has different emotions. No, exactly. And, and I think that when we say that God is love, we're not claiming anything about God being emotional or having some, uh, love is not a feeling in this when we're speaking theologically about God as love. We have to see it in a more ontological or metaphysical sense, understand that we're claiming something about ultimate reality when we claim that God is love. We're claiming that the basis of all existence and the talus, the goal to which everything should strive is love. So this is not just something... So God is a name for the ultimate reality, for the ground of being, for the most perfect essence. And also, therefore, God is the absolute value or the standard <laughs> according to which every other value has to be measured. So we, we have to understand that we're not talking about emotions. We're not making anthropomorphic statements about God. And we are not, we cannot reverse the sentence. We cannot say love is God. That would be a divinization of a human emotion. But when you say that God is love, there's a semantic surplus. We are claiming something about the fundamentals of our existence. We're claiming something about what existence is itself is based upon and what it is, what it is for, the meaning of the world, the meaning of life. But I also think that the declaration that God is love is not only about, should not only be taken as a statement about the essence of being of God. It also has to function as a basic theological criteria. And by that, I mean, when we say, and we say as theologians, we say a lot of things about God, but the statement that God is love should function as the measurement, the criterion for everything we have to say about God. That if we say, for instance, if we say something about God which contradicts the statement that God is love, that contradicts or is incompatible with that statement, we have to make some adjustments because then we are contradicting the basis of our own belief. And faith, religion, in any sort of religion, should be a kind of devotion toward an ultimate reality. And if we claim that our ultimate reality as Christians is this reality, which is love, then of course we shouldn't make statements about that reality, which takes us in a completely different direction. So that God, God is love is a criterion for true or false Christian God talk, I would say. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between God is love and God as Trinity? Yeah, and I think that the doctrine of the Trinity is actually an explication of the sentence God is, is love. 
it's very difficult to love in some uh, love in uh, solitude. If there there isn't anything or anybody to love, love can cannot really exist. Love is a uh, relational phenomenon. Love is something that occurs between objects. In our human case, I would say it's something that occurs between persons. So love, uh, in order for there to be love, there must be something or someone to love. There must be some kind of otherness, some, somebody who's different than you before you can actually love. And the Trinity is about claims, actually, that relationality is part of who and what God is. That in God, there is intrinsic relations. God is not a monad, a kind of self-referential, isolated substance. In his own being, God is related to something, something else. But in the case of the Trinity, God is related to an, a difference or a kind of otherness in himself. God is what occurs or happens between Father, Son and Spirit. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and they are united in this common love. And this love, which is the Spirit, is also accidentally the way in which we are included in the divine triune life. As the classical statements go, we are united with the Father in the Son through the Spirit. So love is something relational. It has to do with how you relate to something else than yourself. And in God, as triune, or a different way to put it is that in God, relationality is a more basic ontological phenomenon than substance. That relations, if God is love, then relations are a more basic reality than, than objects, things, substances. So, so I actually think that the Trinity is about is a is a kind of explication of what it means that God is love. It means that God is a community, that God is always in the business, so to speak, of giving and sharing something with each other. There's an eternal communication, self-giving and response, which is also the nature of love. As I said, you're you're not if you live on a small island all by yourself and there's nothing around you, love wouldn't exist. For there to be love, there has to be more than just one, simply put. The eternal God is not one in a simple sense. He's a unity in difference. There is a kind of internal differentiation within the Godhead. But this internal differentiation is also what explains creation. Because God, out of this way of relating to himself as a kind of difference in himself. He expresses this self-relationality when he creates a reality that is different from God, that is not God, that is the created world, which I take to be a kind of, we could call creation as a love in eruption. It's as if God is heating up inside himself in the triune dynamism, where his love is making him red and hot like an oven and this love expresses or explodes or erupts 
by his own will, of course, in, in creating the world, like an overflow of love. God is love not in the sense that he is pleased with existing in his own triune life. He is the giver of life to something that is not God. That is, God is making room or space for the existence of something else than himself, which is an act of love. And this also leads us to a discussion about eschatology, because if God is creating, God knows the end from the beginning. So the eruption of love is not just a spontaneous moment that God does not know where it's going or what's happening, but that it is a purposeful creation in which God knows that it not only begins in love, but it ends or finds its telos or its final fulfillment in -hmm. love as well. Yeah, sure. Creation is not just an occurrence or accident like a car crash or something like that. It's, It's a purposeful creating of something. And if there's a purpose, there will also be a final causality, a goal, a telos. And so I I happen to think that Gregory of Nyssa was on the right track when he argued in a way that that protology and eschatology is actually one science. To understand creation is to understand the telos, the end. And we have to somehow understand God's act of creating in the light of the eschatological fulfillment creation is being drawn toward. One way to claim this very straightforwardly would be to say that when God creates, he's creating the kingdom. That That is his ultimate goal, to create the kingdom of God. That is the world he's creating. So, and I think we all, if we want to have a realistic theology, have to admit we're not quite there yet. <laughs> creation is is a process something ongoing towards this ultimate goal of Telos that has been there from the very beginning. And I think the kingdom of God is the reality which reflects the fullness of God's own being as love. That is the ultimate Telos. Where, and, and here we actually encounter an argument for universal salvation because if the world God creates or is in the process of creating, Something goes wrong, of course. Something breaks off or some kind of non-being or evil, even of sin enters into this uh, creating of, of the kingdom and disrupts it, distorts it, and needs to somehow be uh, restored or corrected again. I think that as long as the kingdom has not arrived, God is not has not finished creating the world. So the Father and the Son and Spirit has more work to do in creating. In that sense, I think that universal restoration has to be seen as the final act of creating, that the universal restoration of all things is the final act of God's creating the world, which in Incidentally, is also in another perspective the first act because that, that was his tailors from the beginning. But we have to use the word restoration here because something has gone wrong, right? There's a fall of some kind and a kind of detour. And I'm not sure that it's a detour in the perspective of God, perhaps, but definitely is from the perspective of the human being that we cannot experience our life 
as something that is perfect, in perfectly in harmony with the goal God has created us and the world with. One of the things that is sometimes proposed is that maybe God doesn't know the end from the beginning. And so that creation, in a sense, is open and that God is in the process of self-discovery, in a sense, along with creation and all of us. And so while God might be working towards the ultimate restoration of all, that God, in fact, doesn't know a future that does not yet exist. And so there really is a gamble or um, something that can truly be lost in creation for God as well, so that there really is a drama to all of this as to how it is going to all turn out. And so anyway, open theism has an attraction to some because it explains how there can be evil or disruption in the creation, and yet God still be good. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that perhaps open theism kind of make God's in, God into a gambler who runs a tremendous risk. And, and the risk is not just, of course, that some people will experience terrible suffering in the 80 years they, they live here on Earth, but also that they might finally and ultimately reject God and then end either in hell or, or be completely destroyed at the end. So I think that's a very, that's a, a kind of gambling or risk-taking that compromises the thought that God is love. Because we have to remember also that God is not like a human person. <laughs> I have two children. And of course, I knew that it's a risk to conceive children and have children in this world and they can be sick or like a, a war is occurring right now in Europe, not more than perhaps a thousand kilometers away from where we live here. So it's a risk. I, I, could, I don't know if they're going to have a happy life. And still, I put them into this world. So, but I hope that God is more in control of what he's doing. And, and I suppose that he, he definitely is. But I also think that the basic problem here with open theism is the anthropomorphic conception of God. That God is somehow a finite being who is thinking about different possibilities, and then he chooses one of them and then uh, begins to create a world, and then he has to see how things go. That's a very human... That was why I started with an anecdote about myself having children, because then God is not different than us when we create something or put something into the world. Uh, but I like to think that God, as you also stated, David, God, is, God transcends time. So there really isn't a moment, not even in the future, where God has not yet been. So I, I think that creation is more like a, a story that unfolds, but in the consciousness of God, the story is always told, uh, already told to its conclusion. And, and he, he, so to speak, writes the story from the, from the end and wouldn't create, if God is love, he wouldn't create any world unless it would end with the kingdom and perfect happiness and joy for all of his creatures. I think that, would, that actually contradicts the idea that God is love. The problem with 
process theology is that it tends toward uh, making creation, the world, into God's own theogony. That God somehow has to, that God creates, so to speak, himself in world history. That God has, uh, God is on a kind of uh, Bildungsgeschichte, they would say in German, uh, in Germany. I don't know what you would call that in English, but uh, you know, in the fairy tales, as old, always this uh, young prince or something who needs to go out into the world in order to mature and grow up, and then he can return and become the king. And God also, in process theology, tends to create something he doesn't know how it will go, but he has to have a lot of different experiences with the world in order fully to become himself in the end. And this is a kind of, I don't know, semi-gnostic tale about divine becoming, that the God is somehow developing alongside world history. I think that's also kind of problematic because then again, God has to be a final finite subject who can undergo change. God is changeable. I think that raises a lot of metaphysical problems as well. One of the declarations that we find Jesus making in John's gospel is that if he is lifted up onto the cross, he will draw all people to himself. And that word in the Greek there, I believe, is helkuo, which is a strong word, which could also be translated as dragging. Mm. And there is a sense that which God then is not just pushing creation into a future that does not exist, but a sense in which God is drawing creation into a final fulfillment that already does exist, mm. because God is outside of our time and space continuum. Could you say something about that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. God is not pushing us toward the tailors. He's dragging us from the tailors toward him. And I also think that this is completely compatible with the essence of love, to drag somebody into their own salvation, to drag somebody uh, to... That's what we do if our children fall through the ice and are about to drown, we drag them toward ourselves. It's, of course, a violent act somehow and, and forceful, and we, we are forcing them, and what about free will, etc. But in the final end, we are, I think, destined to joy, destined to happiness, eternal happiness in the kingdom, and God will find a way. And in some people will experience and find the way uh, through the grace of God already in this life, and some people will remain rebellious for a long time into the coming eons, <laughs> but in the end, God will drag us to himself. And I think when people object to a kind of forceful salvation, they tend to do so on the basis of, on a wrong analogy. We have to keep in mind all the time that the relation between God and humans is an asymmetrical one. That God is our heavenly father and we are his children. That's the biblical analogy. That's the one Jesus himself uses. It's not a um, a relationship of two uh, consenting equal adults. We have to imagine God on the level as a parent in relation to a little and often very stupid and 
not very thoughtful child. And if our own children wants for some strange reason to play on the on the street outside outside of the house, or wants to touch a red glowing oven, we of course, if we have the possibility, we force them not to do so. The love of God will compel us some way or another into his kingdom. Of course, we get several chances for choosing to be saved, I think. But in the end, I don't think that the lost sheep, uh, God, uh, the shepherd asked the lost sheep for permission to put it up on his shoulder and carry it, carry it to the top of the hill, of the mountain. He found the sheep, sheep put it on the shoulders and went straight ahead to, to the top of the mountain. And also the lost coin didn't ask for permission, didn't have to respond to the woman looking for it. She looked, she found it, and she put it in her purse. I, I think God will do that to some of us in the end. If we, when we stand face to face with Christ in the end, still are so incredibly stupid and self-destructive that we refuse to accept the invitation to join the kingdom. God will drag us inside. So I think that many, God has many different sociological strings to play on, so to speak. And one of them is the dragging. God will get what he wants and what he deserves in the end. We don't get what we deserve, because then we wouldn't enter the kingdom. But God gets what he deserves, and he deserves that his creation will be uh, perfected and will be what he intended it to be in the end. You just mentioned that God will get what God wants, and that one of the things that God wants is for us to be perfected. So there is a sense in which, although we might be very aware with our current imperfections, that in God's ultimate perspective, we already are known to God in our perfected state. So that what we will be in our perfected state is not a mystery to God in the sense that the end of creation or the perfection of creation is not a mystery to God. It helps me to think that I'm not on a journey towards some undetermined final identity, but that who I will finally be in the fullness of my creation is something God already knows and has intended from the beginning. And so that helps me to realize that whatever foibles or faults I might be working through in this lifetime, finally, they cannot have the last word with me, and that God will be victorious not only in forgiving my sins, but in also bringing me to a fullness of my own potentiality in creation and into relationship with God and with all others. When I think about that, that makes me just feel hopeful and positive as I work through the the midst of my own journey in this lifetime. Mm. Yeah, and I think that we are created for perfection, which means union with God in a community with the entire human race, which means that salvation cannot consist in a kind of forensic justification or forgiving of sins. Salvation must mean the restitution and reconstitution of broken relationships, of what is broken in our, in our lives, what we couldn't heal ourselves. And, and I think that 
if we understand what it means that God is triune, that means that God in himself is a community, that God is himself in God's self, that there's God's relationality in himself, then it is a very odd thing to imagine that this triune God's final act towards the created world and his creatures would be to tear down and destroy relationships, which is what any doctrine of damnation claims. That in the end, God will separate fathers from sons, believers from unbelievers, husbands from wives, and some will go to heaven and some will go to hell, or some, at least some will be saved and some will not. So the triune God, who is in his own being, is a community who is relationality in his, in his own being. Should this God, this triune God's final act towards the created world be to break down relationship or to restore and reconstitute relationship? And I think it doesn't make any sense. It's a very inconsistent way of thinking if the triune God is not in the business of uh, fulfilling and sustaining and restoring relations. Nobody is getting saved alone. The kingdom is a community, right? Salvation is entering into a kingdom which consists of persons in a kind of reality we, we cannot even imagine now, right? But definitely there has to be resurrected people who are related to one another. And if God is love, then there has to be, salvation is not an individualistic enterprise. It has to be something that has to do with my relationships to other people. You know, David Bentley Hart's argument, if, if one person is, is lost, then nobody is actually safe because we are all interconnected. We are all related to one another. And if one person is missing, somebody is grieving, somebody is not there, then a part of me, myself, as a person, a personhood is also something that is constituted by the relationships we have. I'm a father because I have a daughter and a son. I have a girlfriend, etc. I have colleagues. Without them, I'm nothing. I'm not a person, definitely not. But it's persons who are saved. And we're saved by a personal God who is triune, who is a community in his own being. And I happen to think it's an extreme paradox of simply just nonsense to claim that the final act of this God would be to tear down relationships, would be to destroy the relationships which that constitute who we are in this life. One of the things that was difficult for me was learning how to work through the judgment and the eschatological language in the New Testament. And one of the things that helped me was to see that judgment really has more to do with the consequences of sin that we bring on our own lives, both individually and historically, and so that a lot of the judgment language of Jesus had to do with what happens to people individually and what happens or what, what he felt was going to happen to the Jewish nation as a whole if they continued on this path of violence. It helped me to see that judgment is what we bring on ourselves and then perhaps what God may in some senses have to bring upon us in order to enlighten us and to deliver us from whatever falsehood or evil we may have adopted because we think in some way we're getting a good deal because of it. And so judgment does have to play a role in 
all of this, whether we bring it on ourselves or whether God has to bring it to us in order to liberate us from some falsehood or some lie that we have embraced. Yeah, but I I also think that in every real process of reconciliation, you have to be confronted. You have to confront yourself, be confronted with some of the things you have done wrong. Reconciliation doesn't consist in forgetting what has been done, in, in obliterating it from your consciousness. You have to face some of the things you have become and what you are and what you have done in order for there to be a real re- reconciliation. To be reconciled is also to be reconciled with all the faults, all the things that was missing, all the love I have failed in my life. Not because God wants me to suffer or be punished by it, but because it's my whole life history God is saving. I don't know if that is a word in English, but life history. A life is not just a momentary, some short moment existing just now, just now, just now. There's a dramatic continuity between who I was when I was born to who I am now and who I will become when I'm very old and who I will be in God's eternal life. There's a kind of continuity here. So so I think what is saved, what God actually saves, is my entire history. And all the events, all the persons, all the people, that has been part of that history. So in order for my history to be saved, I need to see my history in the light of the illuminating light of God's love and in the presence of Christ. And that is that is the judgment that for me, at least, how I imagine it, that the light of grace will illumine every single aspect of my history. And some of it will hurt a lot because there's been a lot of failures and a lot of letdowns and things that gone has gone wrong. But I hope, uh, I hope I make some kind of sense if I say that it's not just persons, but, well, a person is a history. Right? A person is not just somebody who has a history. A person is, in a sense, a history. And what is saved is the his- the entire history. And we have to be reconciled with who we was and has been and what we have become and who we have let down in the process of becoming who we are. So I think we have to be confronted with uh, a lot of terrible things, but it would be shown to us in the light of the God who is love. It's You should never forget that the one who is judging us is Christ, the Christ hanging on the cross, who is taking the burdens on, upon him, who is carrying all the bad stuff from my history, who is taking it away from me or carrying it with, with me and not destroying it, not making it go, go away, but somehow making it, transforming it into a beautiful story transforming it into something I can carry with me into the eternal life. I think one of the things that a lot of people are having trouble with now is a sense of depression because it's hard to imagine a happy ending to the story that we are in. We see the problems with climate change and with political instability and economic instability. And then in the spiritual world, oftentimes 
the loudest voices among Christians tell us about a kind of apocalyptic, violent end to creation in which only a few will be saved, and that doesn't give people much hope. But you're telling a vision of the final end of all things, which is glorious. And if people can realize that they can have this vision and still be Christian, uh, that can really make them much more resilient Hmm. in life, even in the midst of the different challenges that we all face. So could you just tell us kind of in closing that end, that ultimate end that you believe we are all headed towards, that the triune God is taking us towards? Could you just describe that glorious end for us in the best way that you can? Well, that's an easy task to give me, I think. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, I would like just to comment on on your your claim here that people can get depressed and see the world heading towards a kind of apocalypse. And I think that it's encouraging to read in the New Testament the very end, the last word of the Gospel of Matthew is syntelias, which is often translated as end, uh, the end of the world. Syntelias to cosmo in Greek which shouldn't be translated. In the, in the Danish translation, it also says that uh, I will be with you until the end of the world. And it sounds like the world is coming to an end. It's, it's going to be destroyed or somehow be, be destructed. But the word centelias means fulfillment. I will be with you until the fulfillment, until it is fulfilled, until the world has come to its completion which isn't an end or destruction or apocalyptic breaking down of the cosmos, but it's when the world is being ultimately transfigured into the glorious kingdom of God, it has always been intended to. So, but what are we headed toward? What is the completion? I happen to think that the end is the beginning, that we are beginning an eternal life. And and here... I think we should really notice how the Greek fathers emphasized the word life when it came to speaking about eternal life. In the Latin tradition, it is as if the the emphasis was laid upon the word eternal, something unending, something which is forever the same, perhaps. But in uh, the Nicene Creed and in the Apostolic Creed, we hear that what we're looking forward to is life eternal, life. So I happen to think that it will be very lively <laughs> that what we're beginning in the next life is not a restart of, of this life. It's, it's a continuation of this life in a transfigured state where we forever, in a, and forever now doesn't mean unending time. It means that we live in God's eternity, which transcends time. There won't be any time experience, I think, but there will be, as Gregory of Nyssa claims, a kind of eternal stretching out toward ever more complete union with God. And how would that be? I'm not quite sure because I think we have some glimpses from our own lives that could point toward that. We have all experienced moments of 
so complete presence that we say that time stood still. We can experience that also in a bad sense, of course, when something terrible happens, that we don't experience time is going. But I think when you hear, if you hear a wonderful piece of music or have a fantastic conversation with dear friends or your wife, there can be many, many cases here where you experience what we in an everyday language say that time stood still, time stands still. There we are filled with such a complete presence, <laughs> a complete being one with the moment that I think this points toward the condition we will be in. But of course, again, we will, I think in the kingdom, we're not going to be separate entities in the way we are now. I think there will be a complete omnipresence of all souls in the sense that I'm not just looking at a few persons that are that I love. I, I believe that if, if we share in God's love, then we will love every soul with the equal amount and be just as much in love with the stranger who's a stranger now. There won't be any strangers in heaven. We'll be just as much in love with everybody's children than we are with our own. The same love will be extended to, to everybody else. And that would be the perfect community which we can't really imagine. I, I believe in a kind of theosis, the divinization, that we become one with the triune God. But this is a God who is self-sacrificial love which means that at least the part of my self-love, which is narcissistic, will have to go. So that that will be the final part of the judgment. There's, there will have to be some part of my history that will be burned away. That is the parts of me that are completely incompatible with the love for others. I don't think that's would have any space within within the life of, of God. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Sandbeck, for really kind of filling out everything that we could take from the notion that God is love and how that can help us to think about protology and eschatology and how we live in this world now and what we might expect in the world to come. And I think it's a beautiful image and a beautiful vision and I think it's very hopeful for people to be able to know that they don't have to leave the Christian tradition in order to in order to have this vision, that you can have this vision, you can believe the scriptures, and you can be a part of the historic tradition of our faith. You can look back to these early Greek-speaking church fathers that you were talking about, and you can find it there. And there are modern expressions of very well-informed theologians such as yourself who are telling us that we can believe these things as Christians in our day as well. So I wish you well in your continuing teaching and in the work that you're doing in the uh, Danish National Church. I think you are a ray of sunshine there and that you are bringing some new light and good conversation and good possibilities to that situation there. So I just wish you all the best and I look forward to uh, future conversations about 
the work that is going on in the Danish National Church and the conversations that you're having there. Thank you, David. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.